welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast. Is music more than just the sounds that enter our ears? In this live talk, Dr. Amanda Krauss and Solange Glosser examine how music impacts our everyday lives as part of our Music on the Mind series in association with the University of Melbourne. Good evening, and thank you for coming along tonight. Uh, This evening, we'll be talking about music as being more than what you hear. First, we'll introduce ourselves, but I was just thinking we should have had walk-on music, and I'm really disappointed that we didn't come out. Yeah, next time. Uh, So my name is Amanda. I work at the University of Melbourne, and I research in the field of music psychology. And what that means is that I'm really interested in studying how and why we listen to music in everyday life, and then how that impacts our well-being. And I'm Sonoj Glasser, again working at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music with Amanda, also in music psychology, and I'm really interested in multisensory perception in general, and I have a particular interest in synesthesia and absolute pitch research. Great, so tonight what we wanted to cover was, we all know that music is the sounds that we hear, but there's more than that. And so we wanted to cover a couple different topics and give you some really good examples of what we mean through some of the studies that we've done and also studies that have been done in our field more broadly. And in particular, we're gonna pay attention to individual differences, things about ourselves that come into play about this, as well as the social context. And what I mean by that is the environment that you're in, whether or not you're with other people or by yourself or what time of day it is and what activity you're doing. So all of these things come into play to help us understand our experiences with music. So to start, uh, just a few stats to get us started here. The average person, this is pretty incredible when you think across the lifetime and calculate this out, that it's about 13 and a half years of your life that you are spending listening to music. And I think that's just an incredible amount of time that's being spent. Uh, Up on the slide, you'll see that uh, this recent study was done specifically about Australians listening to music, and this is in terms of turning on the radio, using Spotify, listening to your CD or radio uh, or tape collection, whatever it is, that uh, average 3.4 hours per day. So this is an incredible amount of music that we are choosing to listen to. But of course, it's not just what you choose and elect to hear, that's also music that you encounter when you're going about your daily life that maybe you don't have control over. So I've done some studies on this, and it's pretty incredible the amount of music we encounter. So one study that I did used a a methodology that's called the experience sampling methodology. What this means is that participants in the study go about their regular everyday activities, but what happens is they get a text at a random point during the day. And that text was a symbol to them, a signal that said, when you got this text, did you hear music? Was there music going on? And I got a couple hundred people to take part. They got two texts at a random time per day across a week. So ideally you get 14 texts, it could be from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., did you hear music? And then if they did hear music, I asked them a whole lot of questions so that I could understand what was going on. But just so you can see on the screen that nearly half the time across the sample, across who it was, across what time it was, across what day of the week, music was being heard. And that could have been something that somebody put on specifically, or it could have been you were in a restaurant or a cafe and the music was heard. And that's just an incredible amount. 
The other stat that's up on that screen is I did another study where I asked people to recall their previous day as a series of episodes from waking up to going to sleep. So it might have been, I woke up, I took a shower, I had my breakfast, and for each of those episodes that they listed, was there music involved? And here we say again, nearly a third, over a third of the time, music is involved. So between those two numbers, whether it's a third or half of the time, that's an incredible amount of music that we are either choosing to or possibly just encountering. It means that it's really important to understand how we're experiencing this music and how it's affecting our behavior. So one of those things, when we think about the music that we're, he we're hearing, and maybe it's not the music that we've elected to put on, but can affect us in a consumer behavior. So this is, if you think about going to the mall or going to a restaurant, there's music encountered. And you can think about this very clearly. If you go to the mall and there's those teeny bopper shops that are selling the clothing, and it is very clear whether you are attracted to going into that shop or repelled away from it, right? So you maybe don't want to have anything to do with the shop that's selling the teenage jewelry. And that's done very deliberately to attract a certain type of client or a certain clientele to your cafe, to your bar, to your shop. And this is playing on the fact that music is a part of those atmospherics. So it's part of the sight, sound, smell, all that comes together. So not only does it attract you or repel you, so it makes you, do I want to stay in this environment? Do I want to leave? It also influences how we purchase things. So what we actually, how much time we spend in a restaurant and what we're willing to pay for certain things. So just to give you an example, this is one of my favorite studies to talk about. And it's a study about wine. Okay, so one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Adrian North, he did this as a part of his uh, program of research on this topic. So this is great. So if you picture it, you're at the grocery store and it's that end of the aisle display. So it's on sale and you've got bottles of wine to choose from. And there are two types of bottles of wine on this end display. A French wine and a German wine. Both priced about the same. Same level of quality of wine, same price. It was just the fact that it was from a French or German area. Now what they did, this was really clever, on certain days there was French, stereotypical French music being played in the grocery store, and other days there was stereotypical German music. So you can see where this is going, and it's really surprising. So on the days that German music was playing, German wine sales were up. On the day that there was French music, the opposite, the French wine was selling more. Now, don't fear, this isn't causing you to go buy wine or anything else, but if you're in unsure or you're just in the mood, I'm, I'm picking up some wine and you don't have a strong preference, you haven't gone to the grocery store going, I'm gonna go buy a French bottle of wine, this is influencing your decision. And what was also really interesting was they, they watched this happen, they counted the number of people, and they also caught them on the way out. So they packed their groceries, they're on their way out, and they asked them, were you aware of this? And almost everybody was not aware, consciously, they went, oh, the French music was playing, so I bought the French wine. So this is all happening, whether or not we really understand what's happening. Hmm. Oh, me. Back to me. So what Amanda's been describing there is what, what really is the social context and how that can affect 
your behavior, and in particular, your consumer behavior. From my perspective, what's really interesting is to look at this from a, a bit of a different angle and to, to look at the research that's being done on how information that's provided to one of our senses or sense modalities can influence how we perceive with another of our sense modalities. So this concept of the idea that our senses don't act in isolation. And I'm going to stick with wine because, well, <laughs> you can see a bit of a trend happening here. It's one of our favourite things. Uh, and one of the interesting studies that's been done on this idea of multisensory integration was a fabulous study uh, that was actually done as part of the PhD research of a gentleman called Frederick Brochet in 2001 at the University of Bordeaux, because where else would you do a wine study than Bordeaux in France, huh? Am I right? So, clever man. What he did is he presented um, red wine and white wine samples to 54 oenology students. So these are students who are studying the art of tasting wine. Again, another fantastic job, if ever we wanted a job change. Uh, and what he did was he gave these two samples of wine to these oenology students and asked them to describe them. And of course, they were describing uh, these two samples of wines using quite stereotypical wording that you would use to describe white wine versus white, um, red wine. Then what he did, which was really clever, was he uh, dyed the white wine red using uh, an odourless and tasteless food dye. Then re-gave the samples of wine back to these oenology students and asked them again to describe what they were tasting. Surprise, surprise, they took this white wine that now looked red and described it in words that you would typically use for red wine, calling it robust and with strong tannins, etc. What they were drinking was white wine, but they perceived it as being red. So what this study demonstrates is, one, that the senses don't act in isolation, and that information that we give to one sense can alter how we perceive in other senses. Now, moving on from that... Oh, I just wanted to say that it's not just wine that music can change the way things taste. So you can see up on the screen a picture of gelato, and there's a quote from Charles Spence, who's a researcher in this area, saying, sonic quality seems to make a flavor. In the research world, we call this sonic seasoning. So the music that's being played, if you're out at the restaurant, or you can even do this at home if you want to shift things around on your friends, that the music being played can alter people's perception of taste. Uh, I myself have done a study with some colleagues about orange juice. You think orange juice tastes the same, but what we did was we manipulated the music being played. This was done on a college camp, a university campus over in Western Australia. We just had students passing by who saw a free glass of orange juice that came along, tasted it. What they didn't know was we were changing the music that was being played. We had music that was the Beach Boys for an American style. We had Chinese music playing, Australian typical music, as well as then two other conditions where we had nature sounds as one, and then very sort of mechanical city soundscape where you'd hear sort of drills off in the distance, building sites sounds. And it actually did change not only how people were rating the perception of the taste of this orange juice, which, by the way, was exactly the same orange juice, just grocery store, gallon of orange juice, regular, no fancy, not even organic or anything like that. But in addition to the taste, it also changed where people thought it had come from as well as how fresh or organic or the quality of it. So there's, and this was only simply same environment, but changing 
the music that was being played in the background. Mm. You can tell that we've got food and wine on our minds, can't mm -hmm. you? So uh, again, what all of this research tend to suggest that there are these orderly sight-to-sound relationships that exist for all of us. So it's not something... Um, so as you can see here on this, on this graph, when pitch increases, so too does our perception of brightness. So if I was to ask you all to map a really high-pitched sound, people would generally tend to pick very bright objects. Size also decreases, so the higher you go, the size decreases. And then the lower you go in pitch, we tend to say that these are large sounds that we're hearing. And what this means is that we can think about where metaphor comes from and what we describe as synesthetic metaphors. So if you look at what's up there on the board, I could describe this as a loud shirt, right? It's, it's, not a, it's not a quiet shirt, it's pretty loud. I'm not seeing anyone wearing anything like that around here. Uh, and if you look at, again at the graph, what you can see is as brightness increases, a la the shirt on the right, so too does our perception of loudness. So calling this a loud shirt makes sense to most people. So a lot of the language that we use is metaphorical and a lot of those metaphors are synesthetic. They're using information from one sense modality to inform how we describe something, an object from a second sense modality. This is a little experiment that's often been run and this again demonstrates this intersensory relationship that we all have and this is called the Bubakiki effect. Now I'd like you to imagine that the two shapes up there on the board are uh, alphabets, so it's an alien alphabet and there are two letters from this alphabet. One of them is Buba and one of them is Kiki. So take a look up there, your task is to tell me which is which. Who thinks that the one up there on the left is Buba? says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> Kiki? Everyone. All right, so why is that the case? Why are we all, and, and many, many studies have been done to replicate this finding, and it's been suggested that over 98% of people will say that the one on the left is Kiki and the one on the right is Booba. Again, what this is demonstrating is that information that we get from the visual sense is informing our auditory perception of what these shapes should sound like. Now, there is both a innate and also a learned component to this. So it's been suggested, for example, that the one on the right, the boobar, looks like this. One, because of the, the, the sound and the shape that our mouths are making when we're saying it, boobar, uh, and also because the letters that are involved, like the B, are rounded, right? Although they have replicated this in many different places in the world and the findings have all been the same. So there's a little bit more that's happening and not just cultural um, implications. So everything that we've talked about now has been describing things that occur for all of us. So these are intersensory relationships that we all have. But there's a, a small percentage of the population, small but important section of the population, that has a neurological condition called synesthesia. So what is synesthesia? Well, synesthesia comes from the Latin syn, meaning joining or union, and aesthesis, meaning sensation. So a bit like anesthesia is the absence of sensation, synesthesia is the joining or union of the senses. Now, synesthesia occurs in approximately 4% of the general population. So having a quick scan around here, I'd estimate there'd be about 
three or four synesthetes, although we could assume there may be more because you're a slightly artistic population. You may know who you are or you may not. Hopefully by the end of this talk you'll have a bit of a clearer idea of whether you fit this category. Uh, and we also know that synesthesia occurs far more frequently in people who are of artistic um, predilections musicians, writers, etc., uh, up to four times as many in an art student population was found to be true. And we also know that synesthesia is linked to heightened memory and creativity. Now, there are over 80 known forms of synesthesia, a massive amount, and more and more forms are always being found. But one of the most common is called graphene colour synesthesia. And this is where people will report seeing colours linked to individual letters or numbers of the alphabet. So, for example, S might be green, as in this case, and Y might be yellow, etc. And the same colour will always be linked to the same grapheme. Another of the most common forms is what we call spatial sequence synesthesia. And this is where people see days of the week, months of the year, any ordinal sequence or timelines mapped out around them in their peripersonal space. And there may be colours attached to these days of the week, etc., or there may not be colours. It might just be black and, and white. And these, again, they stay the same constant throughout a person's lifetime. One type of synesthesia that in interests us in particular is a stereotypical form of this idea of multi-sensory, so cross-sensory integration, and that's sound colour synesthesia, or what's often referred to as chromesthesia. So this is where people will see colours in response to music or just to everyday sounds. It's not necessarily music, and even within music there are certain subtypes of synesthesia, and we'll have a, look at, uh, a little look at them in a second. So this is um, a video that was um, taken as part of my PhD research into synesthesia. So as part of my PhD, I diagnosed and interviewed 17 synesthetes who had music-related forms of synesthesia. And these were all synesthetes that we pulled from the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music student group. So it was a significant number of students that reported having these conditions. Uh, and this is Thomas, one of my participants, uh, who's describing in a short video how he sees colours and shapes in response to both the note itself, so the musical note, different musical notes have different colours attached to them, and also the instrument that he hears. So instruments have colours and they also have shapes. So these two types of synesthesia interact. And we'll have a little bit of a listen to what he has to say. A clarinet is like a really sharp, straight line. Right. Whereas a French horn is a circle with just a tiny little dot in it that like comes out this way. An oboe would be like a fuzzy line this way. Right. It just depends on the register. And so for example, if I was to play an A on the piano, what colour would that be? Um, yellowy orange. And then if an oboe was to play there, what colour would it be? It would be the same colour but brighter, like more, more orange. And would the shape of it change, the way you explain the shape of the oboe? The piano is it's still aligned this way, like an oboe, but the oboe has more has more of a fuzz on either side of it. Right. Okay. And the piano is more streamlined. Yep. So. Any aspect of music can lead to these synesthetic occurrences. So like we could see here, it could be the 
individual notes, it could be tonalities, it could be instruments, it could be timbre, uh, and all of these can integrate into these quite complex visual experiences for people who have this condition. But it's not just colours. Some people can also taste music. Um, and one of the participants in my study has a very rare form of multimodal synesthesia. Multimodal meaning that there's more than two senses that are joined. And for this particular participant, when he hears music, he not only sees colours, but tastes tastes as well. So he gave one of the examples, for example, that E major is yellow and tastes like mango. Uh, and he also had uh, tastes associated with different instrument types. So the flute, for example, tasted like marshmallow. And when he would describe it, he would actually have that, that feeling in his mouth and you could almost see him chomping away as he was, as he was talking. Um, a really interesting anecdote that I like to share is that when I was in Oxford in 2012 giving a presentation of my research, a gentleman came up to me after the, the talk and introduced himself to me. So I told him my name and he rolled my name around in his mouth, Solange, like this, and said, hmm, gingery, rather pleasant. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad it was Ginger, let me put it that way, because he, he does have names that have quite terrible um, tastes in, involved. Um, he himself gives the, the anecdote that he has a very good friend whose wife's name tastes like vomit, but he's never told him because he doesn't want to, you know, break the relationship. Um, but what's interesting in that example is that it's not just music that can induce these colour sensations. Indeed, any sound source can do so. It could be the sound of rain or the sound of, of uh, pebbles on the ground and indeed for many people, the sound of someone's voice or spoken words. So this same gentleman has done a map of London, a gustatory map of London, where he has gone to all of the metro stations of London and written down the taste of each metro station. <laughs> So there we go. Now, this encounter with this gentleman made me question back in 2012 whether having synesthesia then could impact musical development. What did it mean for someone to have synesthesia uh, in, in rela regards to their musical development? And the research that I did as part of my PhD did quite clearly show that synesthesia impacted these musicians that I was interviewing on a cognitive, affective, and a behavioural level. So really far-reaching and important and significant uh, impacts that were had because of the condition that they had. But today I'd like to focus on the choices, so these behavioural aspects. There are many musicians with synesthesia. Some of the, the more well-known ones in our popular sphere, for example, Duke Ellington, Billy Joel, Lady Gaga and Pharrell Williams, all of these people have spoken extensively about their synesthesia and how it's impacted their creativity, their compositional style, even their desire to become musicians. And Lord is a really interesting one. She did an interview recently, I don't know how many of you would have seen it on 60 Minutes, where she was talking about her synesthesia and a, a song uh, that she'd written called Green Light. I'm sure you all know it. Yeah, um, and what was really interesting was she made a, a, a remark in an interview that a lot of people were trying to find the meaning of what, what does she mean by green light? Does it mean go? Does it mean, you know, what, what is she trying to imply? And she said, well, I was humming away in the back of a taxi, the tune to green light, and she was seeing green, green light all around her and said, hey, I'll put those into the lyrics. So this song, the, the melody that she had in her mind 
ended up being the song Green Light, and there was nothing further to it. That's just what it was. Um, but all of her compositions are based around the colours that she sees. Now, from a more classic perspective, one of the best known and, um, and researched uh, composers uh, with synesthesia is Olivier Messiaen. I did a lot of research into Messiaen as part of my master's. And Messiaen makes the, the comment, colours are very important for me because I have a gift. It's not my fault, it's just how I am. Every time I hear music, and even when I read music, I see colours. And this became an integral part of his uh, musical language, his harmonic language. And I'd like to play you really briefly two clips of music. This, uh, both of these clips come from a piece called La Fauvette des Jardins, um, which is the, um, the, the lyrebird in the garden. Uh, and what Messiaen has done is he has written underneath, if you can see it, I don't know which one the pointer is, right there, Le Lac Rose à l'Aurore, so that means the, the pink lake at dawn. So he's given these colour uh, indications in all of his scores. They're littered throughout his scores. And I'm just going to get us to have a quick listen to The Pink Lake at Dawn. Sorry to cut it there. Anyone seeing pink? A different colour? No? Maybe? A few people? Come and see me afterwards. Um, so, so what Messian has done now, in a bit of a, a Monet style, is that he's then transposed the music. And he's called this one Le Lac Vert et Violet, the, the green and purple lake. So when Messiaen transposed the music, it changed the colour. So for him, if you like, he wanted to paint the, this picture of this lake that was changing throughout the day. And to be able to do so, the music that he decided to compose wasn't arbitrary, it was very well calculated on the colours that he wanted to see and therefore the musical or harmonic language that he had to choose to be able to fit the colours that he wanted to see. So let's see if this sounds a bit more green and purple to you all. change? Got a few nodding heads. <laughs> 
Now, again, uh, as part of my PhD research, I was looking into this idea of how having synesthesia can influence compositional um, decision-making. Uh, and uh, one of my participants, again, Thomas, um, described a piece that he'd written called Cold Blue. And he listed for me all of the different um, uh, tonalities that induced different shades of the colour blue. So they're not all the same. They've all got different hues and different um, shades. So D major, D minor, F minor, A flat minor, and A flat major. And he composed this piece only using those keys to create a tableau, if you like, that was all in different shades of blue. So what's interesting in these examples, it's that the colour that the synesthete is seeing is priming over the decisions, musical decisions that the composer could be making. So what becomes more important for people like Thomas or like Messiaen is that the colour that they're seeing is expressed through their music. So they will even, as Thomas even described that on many occasions, he would make musical decisions that he felt were probably not the best, but he needed to make them to ensure that the colour that would come out was, was better, or the, the colour that he wanted to see. So the colour primed over the music. Now, synesthesia also influences playlist choices or choices in music that we listen to. So one of my favourite quotes is, C major is like tofu, it's just boring to listen to. And poor C major got a real wrapping uh, in my PhD research. So many people describe C major as being bland, as being white or clear or not having a colour at all. And so something that they would either not want to listen to or not want to play. Um, so there are many reasons why that may be so, but C major is not a liked um, uh, tonality. And on that note, neither is the saxophone. It was one of those, and again, sorry to any saxophones in the audience, but um, yes, yeah, saxophone got a really bad rapping as well and was often described as being painful to listen to and painful to see um, and was often described as having a, the, a bright yellow colour that hurt. So why that would be so? Now, uh, another one of the quotes that was um, um, reported was that, the, for example, the Don Giovanni Overture is in D minor, and that song was a really deep red, so if I don't feel like listening to deep dark red, then I won't, or if I do, they will. Uh, and again, going on that same theme, sometimes I just want something that has a particular atmosphere. I have a playlist of blue things, which if I, I'm in a particular mood, I might prefer. So one of my participants actually has a playlist on their iPod pod that's full of blue songs. There's nothing else in there, it's just blue. So when he's in a particular blue sound, wanting to listen to and see blue mood, he'll put on that playlist and just be enveloped by a blue colour. So again, playlist choices were overwhelmingly reported to me as being made based on the colour that the person wanted to see and not based on the music. So again, this idea that the synesthetic percept that they're seeing is overriding the musical considerations that they may have. So playlist is one of the topics that I've also studied, so not in a specific uh, part of the population, but in general. And I was really interested in thinking about playlists and why people make playlists and how they put the songs together. Was it just simply these are my favorite songs or is there more to it? So this is a piece of research that I did for my master's and I was really interested in just finding out sort of how people were putting playlists together. And it turns out that we can think about this in terms of five different types of playlists. So on the one hand, it might just be a favorite artist or a favorite band and you'd be sort of 
curating for yourself your greatest hits album of putting together what you want to hear. And another common way would be a genre. So again, you're sort of thinking about curating that list of I like rock music and I'm putting all together different songs that fit uh, your individual definition of any particular genre. But what I find it really interesting is those are sort of the ways that we think about how music has typically been sort of cataloged before. So you'd walk into a music store and you would go to a genre and you would alphabetically search through the songs. But now we have digital technology, it's not the only way that we're cataloging our music. So these other choices, uh, other types of playlists, are really interesting to consider. So a really big category that's driving a lot of playlist curation is thinking about the music that you would choose for a specific situation or activity. For example, a very common playlist would be to go running or to go exercising. Another very common playlist reported would be music to fall asleep to. Those aren't the only two, but that gives you a, an understanding of the type of thing that falls under that. And then another separate category is thinking about a mood or a certain emotion. So these might be playlists to get pumped up. It might be a playlist to sort of pick yourself up and try to make yourself feel better and sort of regulate your own emotions through listening to music. On the same side, it could be, uh, I feel really sad and I want to wallow in that sadness. So it's not always trying to be positive and pick yourself up, but it could be sort of processing your emotions and trying to understand that sadness and sort of live in that in a space that non-verbally you can sort of get yourself through. And then the other category is an interesting one built around time. So there is a lot of playlists. Uh, it, this most commonly was sort of, here's my Christmas playlist. Here's, a, you know, it's a family holiday and I've put together a specific thing. So that category far less often. But the two very common ways, and you can see this now if you're a Spotify user or uh, yeah, any of the streaming services is you now can go on, you don't even have to make your own playlist, you can simply type in, I need a exercising playlist or I'm cooking Sunday brunch or it could be any number of things very easily that people are curating these different things. Or maybe see Margaret for some playlist ideas. <laughs> She's uh, got a list. She's got them all. Yeah. So what I was really interested in was this idea about making playlists that go along with a certain situation or activity. So I did another study on this as part of my PhD program of research. What I asked people to do was I gave them one of eight different situations and asked them, please make a playlist of 10 to 12 songs that you would select for this activity or for this situation. So these were very common things that had been reported as typical playlists that people would make. So for example, these were things like jogging with an MP3 player, so to get that exercise, a playlist for a house party, a playlist for washing the dishes and just doing you know routine errands around the house, a wedding playlist, a playlist for when you're trying to fall asleep, a playlist for when you're traveling on public transportation. So really thinking about these are the activities in our everyday lives where music features to be a common thing, where music listening isn't the primary, you're sat down just to listen to the music, but it's on while you're doing one of these other activities. And what you can see on the slide there is uh, 
when we did analyses on this, and what I asked people to do was actually give me a, the name of the artist and the song, a list of 10 songs that would act as the playlist. And then they also were asked to rate different qualities of the music that they would consider. So would the music be loud? Would it would be soft? Would it be slow? Would it be fast? And a number of different adjectives to describe the type of music, music that they would choose. And this understanding of describing the set of music that you would choose uh, came into two different ideas. You can describe the music you would choose in terms of how arousing it would be, and so that's on the left-hand side of the screen in the lighter blue, and that's sort of characterized by being loud, invigorating music that grabs your attention. The second way that you can describe the music is in terms of how sophisticated it would be. And this was really sort of described by the characteristics of being a beautiful, sensual, uh, very classy music. And so, it w and this describes all of the music, but what we can see in the chart on the screen is if you think about where those adjectives are, arousing and sophisticated as the average. So if we look across all of the playlists, not paying attention to the specific thing, but just looking at the music that's being used for playlists, that's the average mark. What we can consider is then, was what I was interested in is the music going to be different? Is it simply, this is the music I like to listen to, so it's not going to matter? Or do we take into account the activity or the situation for which this music would be attached? And what we can see is that's very much the case. It is, yes, we like the music that we're choosing, but it's more than that. It actually is based on the activity. So the above the mean is statistically we found that in the case of arousing, describing the music that you would choose for different situations, you're choosing more arousing, more get up and go music for when you are jogging with an MP3 player and when you're at a house party compared to the opposite to be true. So you're choosing music when you go to sleep. It's not the same as a house party. It's serving a different purpose. You're not trying to create a dance party with your friends. You're trying to relax yourself and put yourself in a state of mind that's calm and relaxed to go to sleep. So we can see, and then also for a cocktail party, it's not an arousing sort of background music. And this intuitively makes sense, but here we're showing statistically through this research data that it's not just what music we want to hear, but that it needs to fit your idea of what you're motivated to do in that situation. So it's sort of a goal-based listening. It's a use of music that's helping you achieve a goal. If I'm trying to run and motivate myself and not give up after five minutes of running, I want that arousing music to keep me going. In terms of sophisticated, we can understand this in the same way. Music that was being chosen for a wedding and for a cocktail party was rated as being more sophisticated than the music that you would be choosing to get that dance party going at your house party or while you're commuting on public transportation. Now what's interesting is that's a subjective choice. I asked people to rate the qualities of the music, but because I also was given those names of artists and songs, I was actually able to objectively measure the music that was being used in terms of the BPM or the tempo of the music and the results reflect that arousing category. So we are objectively, when I took and I measured every, how fast every piece of that music was, found the average and the average for the music being chosen for jogging at a house party 
was faster than the music when you're falling asleep. And that's across everybody. So even within those individual preferences, that situation is really having an effect on what you're choosing to listen to. And what's interesting here is, so we've covered sort of that intra-individual idea of yourself is influencing your music preference. And, but we can think at a few different levels. So that's a personal, sort of what Solange was saying, that's a personal I see blue that's driving my preference, which would be different from me because I don't see blue when I choose my music. But we can also think about then the situation, and so that's a broader level like we've just been talking about these activities. We can actually go even further out and think very on a macro level what is driving our preference. And there's been a lot of different studies that are really interesting that's been done that is actually linked what's being popular at the time in terms of being on the radio and liked in music is actually linked to how the economy is doing as well as sort of uh, environmental conditions. And this got me thinking and I found this really fascinating. So I go, okay, people have told me in that previous study that they make playlists for certain situations, but they also told me that it was time-based. And I went, hold on a second, I need to know more about this. So what I did was I asked people to tell me if they were gonna make playlists for the seasons, what would the music be? Again, I was interested, is it just your favorite music or is there gonna be something bigger at play? And this is weather-based, Season. So I asked them to make playlists for the four different seasons. And again, we can think in this case, there were three different ways of categorizing that music. Again, we see that arousing quality, so how fast, how energetic is that music. And that's on the left here, and is that orange, yellow? Can't quite tell, orange. What we can see is there's a very clear difference. Uh, the first two, it's sort of small if you can't see, is autumn and winter are on the left-hand side, followed by spring and summer. So the music is far more arousing in spring and summer than it would be if you were listening uh, to the music that you would want to listen to in autumn and winter when it's uh, sort of less arousing. Serene is sort of that idea uh, of that sophisticated idea, but slightly different. Um, happiness follows in that beautiful, sort of relaxing, calming music. And here, uh, also, in terms of arousing, there wasn't a difference, but I did collect data both from people who were living in Australia as well as the United States. And here, with these other two dimensions, we actually see there's differences between what the Australians were saying and what the Americans were saying, which is interesting, but if you look at sort of the general shape of both of those lines, what you see is that spring music was more serene, and that's a really interesting idea if you think of what spring is, is the flowers are coming back, rejuvenation, especially if you come from a place like me where there's proper snow in winter and then life comes back, and you're seeing that reflected in the music choices. Melancholy, this idea of sort of a sadness quality to the music, you can again see a really, yes, the line moves, but you see a very definite shift between autumn and winter and spring and summer. So the cooler, colder months and the warmer months. And here it's flipped in terms of that arousing idea where we see uh, autumn and winter being more melancholy music. 
What's really interesting about this is one, that's super interesting that the weather is influencing our music choices, but what's also really neat about this is the, the way that these patterns have come out maps onto other weather patterns that we see in other forms of behavior. So other research has shown that people make financial decisions differently on if it's a sunny day, there will be more trading in the stock market, as well as sort of um, our moods and emotions. So you might have heard of seasonal affective disorder where people get really sort of sad and depressed when it's dark and cold and gloomy, but are very um, more happy and um, even it can be bipolar sometimes to an extreme of being sad in darkness and very manic and happy in summer. And you see this in terms of the arousing uh, and melancholy idea here. So it's really interesting that uh, the seasons are affecting our behavior in these other platforms in the same way that it's affecting our music choices. And that brings us back, if we think about time, that's on a very global, very macro level where that's not within ourselves but affecting all of us. But time can actually circle back and think very um, individual here. And I'll just leave you with another idea about preference to close that loop related to time. And this is the idea of music preferences uh, in respect to how old you are and your age. So this is recent data, although there's been a lot of data that has looked at this. Um, uh, that This was just from this year. They used Spotify data, and their question was whether uh, the popularity of songs, was that related to how old people were, the age that you encountered that particular song. So what uh, they looked at here, and it's sort of small to see, but up on the screen on the top, this is separated by males and females. So females by age are up on the top, that's in the green, and then blue as the male data. So they've just chosen some of the most popular songs from different times and plotted that in terms of looking at the Spotify data across all the users looking at the most highly popular uh, ranking based on the years. And what it shows is basically, so up on the top left-hand side, we see That's the Way Love Goes, which is a song by Janet Jackson uh, from 1993. And so this is 2018 data, but what we're seeing is the most, the popularity in terms of age is women aged 35. So essentially they were 11 when the song was released. And the idea is that if we come down and just give one example from the blue on the, the male data, Crazy Love in the middle, that's a Van Morrison song. Men who are 63 today would have been 16 when that song was released and that's more popular. And their, their quote from this article is, if you love it as a teen, you love it forever. And what the research shows is that there's this idea, it's called a reminiscence bump when you're older, you really like the music that you heard during a critical period. And this is your early adolescence, sort of teens to early 20s. That's the music that's staying with you. Now, of course, you're going to pick up and learn new things and enjoy other music. But there's really this idea that this is the music that sort of stays with you. And I'll leave you with one thought on this. And what is the music that you'll like when you're older? And what I tell the students at the university is Justin Bieber 
and people like Britney Spears are coming back. We're not done. <laughs> we're going to see them again. So if you were a teenager when this music came out, it's going to be, you know, the Frank Sinatra of aged care today <laughs> shifting forward is possibly going to be Justin Bieber. So what I've put up on the slide just as examples, on the left-hand side, the first one, that is the current, today, this week's hit Aria single is Shotgun by George Ezra, but if we go back a year ago, five years ago, 10, 20, 30 years ago, thinking about where, and that's as far as I could go with the Aria data, I wanted to go further. But so if you take the one on the furthest on the right, um, I've had the time of my life from Dirty Dancing, fabulous song. That was the number, the end of the year hit for 1988. So if you were a teenager around that time, that's gonna stay with you and come back and be something that you really enjoy. And that's simply based on this idea of the time that you experience this music. I do wonder if this is shifting a little bit with things like Spotify, because I could sit down today, having never heard I've had the time of my life, and hear it right as I hear Ricky Martin, as I hear Katy Perry, and that's, I could be the same age. So this may be shifting because we don't have those five hits that are on the radio, that we have this wider ability to hear music, but this idea is still staying with us. Dr. Glasser. Am I starting? Right. Tell us what you're working on currently. Right, so just to sort of leave you with a bit of a taste of what's happening at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, yes, and that was, I did do that one on purpose, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for mentioning. A taste of what we're having. Um, again, if anyone can actually taste what I'm saying, come and see me afterwards. But um, so two things that I'm particularly interested in, one is looking at the impact of having synesthesia on childhood development. So we know that uh, in general, there is a hypothesis that we were all born synesthetic, that as babies, all of the senses are crossed and then there's a neuronal pruning that occurs at approximately four months of age. And the majority of us who don't have the genetic uh, predisposition, lose it. Some of us continue to have it. So how does having synesthesia as a child, again, because we know that more children have it than adults, how does this affect development, particularly from a musical perspective? Uh, and I'm also very interested in a bit of a thought experiment that's being done at the moment, which suggests that, well, what, what is to happen if the synesthesia gene is expressed in an area of the brain that isn't involved in perception, does this lead to higher creativity uh, in other fields? So this is something as well that I'm currently very interested in looking at. Amanda. Uh, so I'm very interested in this idea of using music in everyday life, but if we're experiencing all of this music and we're using it for things like trying to shift our mood or while we are exercising all of that, where there's a goal to it, I'm really interested in how that might positively influence our well-being. So we're working on a few studies right now. One in particular is thinking about the radio, so as a format that not only provides entertainment like music programs, but also in, uh, provides information, the weather, the farm report, politics, all of these things, can is that linked to our well-being, and particularly thinking about that in terms of older listeners, because our population is aging and we're living longer, we want to think about quality of life, and the radio has been a tool that's been around that we all understand. Can we actually use that and understand how our listening might be a positive influence on our well-being? 
So we'll leave you with that to get you primed, but we uh, have plenty of time. Oh, wait, there's one more. Oh, yeah, but yeah. yes, no, I think it's better that we do questions. Basically, okay. music, what we hope that we've, we've been able to, to demonstrate this afternoon uh, is that music certainly is far more than just what you hear. Thank you. Questions, please. Thank you very much. That was really informative. Could you, back to the wine one though, please. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like it already. <laughs> also a bit of ad about advertising and, and the beep bopping things. If, if <coughs> did, did, do I have to know that it's French music as opposed to German music, as opposed to Chinese music, as opposed to... So in this particular study, it was very stereotypical umpa German music or French music. So, but you wouldn't necessarily need to have sort of an in-depth knowledge of that. And you could think even more broadly in terms of just it being a feeling. So in terms of a cafe or restaurant, if it's one tempo and loudness and all of that, but it's just you know, is it something that is you're finding to be inviting? and matching your preference. So what, what would be, as then my second question is about advertising or going into shops, what's the, is, I mean, is there a name for what people compose to as far as, if, if, if I was going to compose to mm. a restaurant, say, or, or a jean shop? Are there different ways of composing to those things? Sure, there is. I mean, there's no silver bullet, magic bullet song that you would use, but it would be trying to tie it to the goals that you're advertising to. So there's some, there's a, somebody was telling me about a pizza restaurant in Sydney that's trying to be very hipster and get that crowd in. So they're gonna choose this, you know, very current music, which might not fit if you're the old school Italian restaurant, so that the music needs to match what you're doing. So it's not necessarily one song, but you could be composing music for the atmosphere. Some restaurants change their music seasonally to match a change in uh, what the chef is preparing. So there's a lot of uh, thinking that needs to go on, and of course, if it's not resonating with your clientele, then that's going to affect things as well. Um, thanks for the presentation. That was incredibly interesting. Um, you've spoken a lot with regards to synesthesia about um, individuals who have this uh, ability, let's say, um, like seeing the uh, like shapes and colours. Um, can you provide a little bit more of a description about how that actually happens? Is it an oral, like, can you, like, visually, does it appear in front of someone? Is it, you said that uh, Lord was in a car and seeing the colour green. Um, does that mean that everything around her is shaded with green or is it uh, more present in someone's mind's eye? Mm, great question, thank you. So there are actually two types of synesthetes, one that we call associator, and they make up approximately 80% of the synesthesia population, so they're far more prevalent. And associators are people who see the colour in their mind's eye, so exactly like you were describing. They don't see it projected in front of them. The second group are called projectors, and they make up approximately 20% of the population, and they do see the colours projected in front of them. Now, in general, people who are projectors, they have a stronger form of synesthesia. Uh, and also more often people who are projectors report having difficulties with their synesthesia. So this is when it be can become, in some rare cases, quite pathological. So there, there are reports, for example, of people who will be waiting at the lights and they will hear um, a car horn that is green and they will start to walk across because they think that the light has 
turned green, and it hasn't, it's red, but they have such a strong projection that they can't see the changes. Uh, again, with things like reading, people who are projectors, if they see a letter of the alphabet um, that, um, that's written in black ink, they won't know it's in black ink. You could change the ink to red or blue, but they will always see it in the colour that they're seeing. Associators, again, this 80% of the, the synesthete population only see it in their mind's eye, so it's a weaker form. For Lord, I don't know which one she is. I would suggest that she's probably an associator, but she could very well be a projector. Hello. Uh, again, thank you for that presentation. It was wonderful. Um, when I first read in the catalogue that word synesthesia, and it said that um, it's a way of I'm not getting it right. Translating so you could taste it and feel it. I said to myself, yes, I want to get onto that. I'd love to be able to do that. That's what I really want. Um, my music, uh, my favourite music is always very non-pedestrian. Um, I don't listen to Justin Bieber or any of those other weird people. Uh, <laughs> I've got my own um, preferences. Um, the very experimental, so-called esoteric types mm -hmm. uh, of people. Um, and when I saw in the little leaflet near the door today that, hey, the synesthesia is a condition, I thought, no, oh, shit, that's not right. That's not what I was led to believe. You know, I want my money back. Um, I would like you just to comment on, on that and um, and um, see if you can help me out, sort of just attaining synesthesia. <laughs> and what is really the downside of it? Right. I mean, apart from crossing the lights, you know, when, sure, they're, when sure. they're really red. Sure. And also, yes. may I ask, while well, I've got this thing in my hand... Um, <laughs> got quite a bit of power, doesn't it? Mm. This is it. Um, would you like, would you mind commenting on synesthesia in the context of neuroplasticity? Is there any kind of relationship or is there any way to reach some level of neuroplasticity through synesthesia? Mm. Okay. There's a lot in there to unpack, but I'll try and do it in a systematic order. So, uh, first of all, as a condition, yes, it is described as a neurological condition. Uh, so that's not a typo in the in the thing. Um, uh, and the reason why it is such is because it does have a genetic basis, uh, and it is different, if you like, from what we call normality. So again, this idea of you know um, normality is is is. Um, uh, con contestable to some degree. However, because it does occur in a small percentage of the population, uh, synesthesia, again, I'm going to try and straddle two at once. Synesthesia is, uh, does have a strong comorbidity with other conditions such as autism or schizophrenia. 
So it doesn't occur in isolation, if you like, as a condition. It can, um, but not always. Uh, and what we find, for example, is that people with synesthesia, and the research I did as part of my PhD was also an absolute pitch, and there's a, there's a comorbidity between synesthesia, absolute pitch, and autism. And what um, studies have also suggested is that not only do people with autism, not only are they far more likely to have synesthesia and or absolute pitch, but people with synesthesia and absolute pitch also exhibit uh, autism-like traits far more often than the general population. So there is a, a confluence, if you like, between these conditions. So to look at it, it can be quite romantic as a condition to think, oh, I'd love to see all these beautiful images and etc. But that's not the whole story, right? So there's that aspect to it. Um, as far as it being um, difficult, uh, again, for the majority of people, they do see it as a, as a positive thing. And for example, within my study, all of the synesthetes in my study reported at the end that they would choose to have it if they had the choice, so they wouldn't want to give it up. It's part of their identity. It's quite a strong part of who they are. However, there are rare cases of multimodal synesthesia where all of the senses combine. And in these people, systematically, they report finding it very difficult to operate in, in the real world because every aspect of their senses combines with all of the others and it's like an extreme sensory noise that they have to live with. So they tend to live quite sheltered lives and to, to not um, have the impact of, of what would be going on around them. So if you can imagine that every time you, you, you heard something, you tasted something, you saw something and it's all projected and, and quite strong, it, it can be quite difficult to live in that aspect. Indeed, yeah, it's, it's very overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, this, so if we sort of, <laughs> again, segue into the, the neuroplasticity aspect, uh, synesthesia has also been linked to savantism. So people who have savantism, so savants, or people who have uh, extreme um, memory abilities, for example. So synesthesia can be used as a mnemonic device. Uh, and uh, one of the greatest examples was by a gentleman called Daniel Tammet. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He was the European um, champion of, of learning pi. He learned, in a couple of weeks, he ended up learning pi, so the number pi, to 22,000 decimal points. Did it over five hours, and he said physically it was, you know, that was harder than actually learning it. But he says in interviews that, uh, so he's a, a savant, he has autism, he has Asperger's, um, and had epilepsy as a child. Uh, and he describes that he doesn't remember the numbers, he's actually reading off the image that he sees. So every number has a, a, a colour attached, but on top of it, groups of numbers have like um, mountainous ranges of different colours and forms. So all he's doing, if you like, is not actually recalling the number like um, a, a, a neurotypical person would. He's actually reading off the mountains and just watching the film go through his mind, and that's how he's able to do it. So yes, when we come to this idea of neuroplasticity, there are many ideas that can be formed from synesthesia, but what we know in general about neuroplasticity and about exceptional ability is that it's suggested that to be able to have these exceptional abilities, there needs to be deficits in other orders. So the reason why our brain 
does compartmentalise for the majority of us, at least in our consciousness, that this is sound, this is vision, etc., is because we're bombarded by so much information every day that we need to be able to segregate. Uh, and our brains do that as a, as a coping mechanism, as a survival mechanism. So to be able to reach these high order or high level um, abilities, there are deficits in other uh, in other aspects of our lives. So it's a bit of a, uh, of a weighing game, if you like, to be able to do one or the other. If you want synesthesia, and I would never suggest that you do this, but you can induce it by sensory deprivation, um, by being in situations of extreme hardship, um, such as extreme cold or hunger, or through taking hallucinogenic drugs. But not to say <laughs> that that's what you should be doing. And it is slightly, it's a, it's a different experience to what synesthesia as a neurological condition is, but it does give you a bit of a taste. I'll get you to write that down later on. <laughs> Doctor's prescription. Thank you. Um, I could have listened to both of you for hours. We're happy to talk for hours. There's a pub nearby. <laughs> Might take you up on that. Um, I've just got one, a couple of little little things. Um, you're talking about um, the seasonal affective disorder um, and music. Um, tastes, how they change in relation to the seasons. Um, how about um, music tastes changing in relation to just the day-to-day -day circadian rhythms? Yes, that uh, has not really been explored to the degree of I couldn't tell you exactly what's happening, but there definitely is patterns to our listening across the day, and so it could be very well linked to that. We would just need to do some more research. Yeah, I, I would suspect it would be much similar just in the microcosm, as it were, I suppose. Yeah, I could yeah. tell you uh, from that study where I had asked people uh, just to get texted and told me, so one of the questions was, okay, if you did hear music, where were you, what were you doing, all of that, and you could see very clear patterns that we could all very clearly understand that in the morning there was a lot of radio listening, if you're thinking about the format, which makes sense, you're probably driving to work, maybe the radio's on. In the afternoon it was more stereo, based and things like that. So not only the preferences of what you're actually choosing to listen to, but how you're accessing that music also has time-related patterns as well. And um, just something on um, changing, enhancing and changing moods. Um, I'm, the, I'm a psych nurse and the clientele I work with are um, quite heavily influenced, or they're, they're suffer a lot of emotional numbness, so um, they tend to listen to things that actually make their condition worse, but it does actually mean them that they feel something. So they tend to be a lot very aggressive and arousing m music. Um, and some of the things that I do sometimes when I can have a bit of a chance um, is, is show them how to um, curate playlists that's, that maybe start off arousing that will then shift and change the moon to something relaxing because that's what they need to do. Yeah, so that's a really interesting thing is not only can you create the playlist to sort of experiencing that one particular mood, but you can sort of gradually shift your way from one state into another. There is uh, some research that tells us that you need to be careful and that interacts with your personality and things. Um, one of our colleagues looks at this in a lot in relation to uh, depression. And so people who ruminate and spend time in that depression and continually think about things, listening to sad music, even if they want to sort of get their sadness out, that might not be a healthy strategy because they will ruminate and stick in that. Whereas if you're, uh, you know, a typical happy functioning person, you could 
work through your sadness that way. So it's not a simple do this, listen here to this song, then that song, then that song. There is sort of a lot of things going on within that and we're currently doing a lot of research in this area to sort of understand that more on a level where we could then do some sort of not prescription in the same way of writing a doctor's prescription, but to understand sort of setting up the type of music and the pathway to f changing your mood. Solange, just a really quick question. I've heard you talk about uh, synesthesia many times, but in relation to you know, the people that you interviewed talking about orange and green and blue, etc., but never white and black. Have you got a comment about that? Have they, do they talk about white, white and black? And I ask that because musical notation is a white background and black text. Mm. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> My, my former supervisor and now boss in the house. Uh, well, actually, really interestingly, and it's a great point you make because, again, this comes back to this romanticised notion that we have of synesthesia, of everything being beautiful and, and etc. Actually, the majority of synesthetes have quite a lot of numbers and letters or musical notes that have got no colour at all. So not so much being black or white, but actually being colourless. So people who have synesthesia, particularly there's been a lot of research done on grapheme colour synesthesia, next to nothing done on music-related synesthesia, until I came along. But the, the grapheme colour synesthesia was an interesting one because people would often report, so they'd go through the alphabet, oh yes, A is red, B is blue, C is yellow, and then they'd kind of go, well, D's got nothing, E's got nothing, F's got nothing, oh, and G's green, and, and so then they'd go through. Um, but quite a lot of the alphabet would have absolutely nothing. Now, as far as the white goes, C major. Again, C major was often reported as being white. You could conjecture that one of the reasons may be because when we learn musical notation, um, C major is the white keys of the, the keyboard and so um, it's all white. Uh, it could also be because there are no sharps or flats involved. So it's a, a clean uh, stave that we're reading off. Um, potential hypotheses as to why C major is often white or with no colour or translucent, diamond-like, etc. Or tastes like tofu. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Wonderfully interesting talk. This is probably a really ignorant question, but I, I know nothing about synesthesia other than very basic. Are the colours constant for, for people with synesthesia? For example, you talk about the blue colours, you know, D minor, F major, A flat. Yeah. Are, they, are they blue for everybody, or do people have individual colours that they, that they respond to? Mm, again, excellent question. No, actually, so the colours are constant uh, inter-individual. So uh, the same person, and it's, and it's really very consistent. There are some um, small changes that some people report throughout their lifetime, but the one individual um, will report the same colours from when they were toddlers all the way through to, to later in life. However, between individuals, the colours can vary greatly. So when synesthesia research first began, um, there was a lot of um, research done on the assumption that children were learning the colours, again, so uh, most of the research is done on grapheme colour synesthesia, so coloured numbers and letters, that children were learning the colours from um, alphabet books or alphabet magnets. So there was a great study that was done that looked at the alphabet magnets that were given to all of the kindergartens in the UK in the 80s to see if there was a correlation between the alphabet magnet colours and the colours of the synesthetes, and there was absolutely no correlation whatsoever. Um, and between synesthetes, 
estates, you know, once an estate will have A that's red and the next one will have A that's blue and the next one A that's yellow, and they can get quite aggressive. So if you go to synesthesia conferences, it's fantastic because you've got all the researchers on one side and all the synesthetes at the other that are quite literally having arguments about how wrong the other person is about the colours that they're perceiving, which makes us all giggle because, you know, well, <laughs> everyone's correct in what they're perceiving. So there are potentially some... Um, uh, slight, like we were just talking about now, C major being white, there are these cases where a larger percentage of people will see the same colour. A, for example, in over 60% of synesthetes is red. And it's thought that perhaps when we learn A, we learn A is an apple. So this is in, in um, and it's often with a, a red apple involved. So it's possible that synesthesia is a genetic condition. But if you do have that predisposition, you have to learn it from somewhere. A is not embedded in our brains. We learn the concept of what an A means. So at that stage, there is that learned component, that environmental effect that may be stepping in. However, although there are these, these interesting cases for the majority of the alphabet, for the majority of notes or tonalities or instruments, it's completely arbitrary which colour goes with which note. But again, within the individual, it stays constant throughout their lives. Oh, we've run out of time. Like we said, there's a pub somewhere, let's all have a drink, wine and taste things, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much everyone for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast. To discover more about the stories behind the music, musicians and people that make Melbourne Recital Centre the best place to hear, visit soundescapes.melbournerecital.com.au. And for more information on Melbourne Recital Centre's talk series, visit melbournerecital.com.au forward slash talks. Mm-hmm.